The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the ninth chapter. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent. And in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. My dear brothers and sisters, I bring you grace and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you heard uh, from Tricia in the children's message, and as it says at the top of your bulletins, this is Transfiguration Sunday. So this is the Sunday when we are reminded of that event in Jesus' life when he goes up the mountain with Peter and James and John, and he is transfigured. He's made radiant in some mysterious way, and they see him in all of his glory, and Moses and Elijah appear, and the voice of God is heard to say, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Today, uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give us sort of one, it's not the only or exhaustive way to talk about this passage, but one framework that might help us think a little bit about this passage and importantly connect it to events, events in our world today. And the, what I'm thinking of is, is comparing what happens on the mountain there at the Mount of Transfiguration with what we do in worship. And I want to suggest this morning that the gospel writer Luke actually is encouraging us to think about it in the context of worship for a very specific reason. Um, if you want to follow along, you can. It's page 944. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And in the very first phrase of this passage, which we heard Sandra read, Luke writes this, Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And it's that word eight that I'm focused on. Uh, and it's interesting, if you compare this uh, version of the story of the transfiguration, transfiguration with the other two in Matthew and Mark, they have a different number there. It's the number six. And you may think, well, maybe Luke just misremembered or got it wrong. I want to suggest, though, that that's an intentional change that he makes, an editorial change for a particular reason, which is that in the earliest days of Christianity, uh, Christians would often talk about this day, Sunday, as the eighth day. And the instinct, which I think makes sense, is that creation, as we are told in Genesis, took six days, on the seventh day God rests, and then the week begins again on day one. 
the instinct of the earliest Christians was, well, there was that original creation of God, but then thanks to Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, Sunday now is not just a repetition of the same old creation, but is a new creation, a new time. So Sunday for them often was referred to as the eighth day when they gathered to do what? Worship. So I think Luke is cluing us that he wants us to reflect on this event as a form of worship. And there are other things that happen in the reading that reinforce that. So for example, we're told that they go up the mountain. Why? To pray, which we do in worship. We are also reminded in verse 30 that Moses and Elijah appear. Importantly, Moses represents what? The law. And Elijah represents the prophets. So in a very real way, they personify most of the Hebrew scripture in the law and the prophets. And of course, during worship, we do what? We read the, the law and the prophets, and in our case, the New Testament. We read scriptures during worship. So they are there personifying that scripture. Very importantly, this is sort of um, implied to us as we read it, but it's a very clearly there. They also uh, bring up the cross and the resurrection. This is verse 31. We're told Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and we're speaking of Jesus's departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That very clearly refers to the fact that he is going to climb up on a cross to die and will be raised from the dead. What does that represent? Only the very central fact of our Christian faith, which is why crosses appear in the center of our sanctuaries as it does here at St. Philip Deacon. And then finally, the connection to worship would be that uh, Peter has this instinct that, well, this is so wonderful. It's so beautiful. You know, Jesus, you're being transfigured. We're hanging out with Moses and Elijah. Let's just stay here forever. Right? He says, uh, let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And in every account, Jesus is basically says, no, this was good. It was good for us to be here, but now it's time for us to go down from the mountain back into the world where we are being called to share God's love. And he goes on to continue to heal. In the same way, we come here, we are gathered, and hopefully have some encounter with God that is good and true and beautiful, but we aren't asked to stay here. We are invited after worship to, go be, to be sent back out into the world to carry God's love into a world that is in need. The final thing I will point out about how this connects to worship is that um, in a very real way, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus all have an opportunity to see the world from a different perspective physically because they are up on the mountaintop looking down. And I want to suggest also that worship for us has that same effect. It allows us to change our field of vision, to change the way we look at the world and see the events of the world and the world itself through an eternal lens. And this is the point that brings us maybe to an intersection with some contemporary events. This last week, of course, was an eventful week with all of the activities in the Ukraine. And I actually want to reflect on that um, with, again, this idea of a a sense of perspective, an eternal perspective. And I actually want to turn to a person I know is a little bit of a joke almost, but I want to turn to C.S. Lewis, who I, I turn to with some frequency. But I turn to him because he often has something very significant and serious 
and important to teach us. And in this case, um, the writing I'm thinking about that is by him, it was actually a sermon he preached, and he preached it uh, very importantly in October of 1939. Now, those of you who are history buffs will know that October of 1939 was just, this was literally just weeks after Germany had invaded Poland. So it was the very early stages of what would become World War II. And significantly, he is preaching this sermon to students at Oxford, okay? The, the, the piece in this collection is called Learning in Wartime. I imagine you can find it if you Google it. We'll see if we can find a link somewhere and, and connect you to it. But so he's preaching to these students who you will understand are thinking, among other things, why would I possibly be here at Oxford studying? The world is falling apart around me. What I'm doing here can't possibly be significant or important. And Lewis, again, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to uh, talk about the entire essay, but basically what he is trying to say to these students is, you are right where you are supposed to be. And yes, I understand you are scared and you are afraid and worried, but Lewis's point is God, believe it or not, has work for you to do which will be important in the long run, even here even now. And again, I mentioned that word perspective, and the couple of brief things I'll lift up from this uh, sermon slash essay uh, start with a sentence that talks specifically about perspective. Again, this is C.S. Lewis in October 1939, talking to a bunch of Oxford students. For this reason, I think it is important to try to see the present calamity, he writes, in a true perspective. The war, he says, creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life, he says, has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. And then this final sentence I'll quote, life has never been normal. Again, C.S. Lewis, life has never been normal. His point is, life is always in this fallen, broken world. It is always filled with distractions, with disappointments, with pain, with grief, with illness, with death. If we as Christians wait for the perfect time, to do God's work. This is part of what he's saying to these Oxford students. If we wait for the perfect time, the perfect time will never come. So what that suggests to me, my dear friends, is a few things. One, I want to uh, suggest to you that right now, here in this place, you are right where you are supposed to be. Hearing the scriptures, praying together, being nourished at the Lord's Supper, growing in community with one another and with a God who loves you. So that what? You can be sent back out into the world carrying that love. How can each of you carry that love into the world, carry that peace into the world? The only way you can do it is in the particular details of your own life. So I also want to suggest that in your own life, you are exactly where God needs you to be. 
And what you are being invited to do today, here and now, is to be a good husband, a good wife, a good grandfather, a grandmother, a good parent, a good student, a caring employer, a good employee, an important member of the community, right? And yes, there may be things that God is inviting us to do as it relates to the situation in the Ukraine, either individually as an organization, as a community of faith, and we should listen for those. But in the meantime, I want to suggest that the final thing that God asks us to do is something God is always asking us to do, but maybe particularly so today, and that is to pray, and particularly to pray for peace. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, we thank you for drawing us together here in this place of worship to be reminded of who we are and whose we are. We thank you for drawing us together as a community so that we can be strengthened and nourished, not so that we can stay here, but so that in our individual lives we can be sent back out to share your love and your peace with a hurting world. And all this we pray in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.